Case file number 5.05. The wrongfully accused. Observed by Agent Grinshaw. Agent Grinshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. Y you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. He, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one. The other one. Y Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So for today's episode, been an idea kind of kick around in my head for a little bit. And I think we've, we've touched on it before, at least in one episode, maybe previous ones, uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, yeah, we talked about that in the uh, in the 2600 Club one. We talked about it mm. in a few other episodes where, where where this stuff came up. Right, right, yeah. I remember listening to that entire episode recently because I, uh, like I said, I think in my last week's episode, I've been kind of going over some of the old catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. One of the things that we were talking about from a legal perspective is that we don't really have a lot of updated laws to deal with computer crime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, other than specific stuff about spam. And well, I mean, child porn's always been child porn, and that's been prosecuted, frankly, under different laws. It's just that the right. technological technique required to go after those folks has changed, but the laws that govern them don't yeah. or haven't. Yeah. So for this episode, I just wanted to touch on like a handful of cases uh, where the uh, CFAA was used pretty damn loosely. Mm -hmm. A lot of these um, quote unquote hackers were vilified in the news reporting and by prosecutors, government officials without any real knowledge of what they had, you know, quote unquote hacked. Mm -hmm. And we, we see that, you know, not just in these cases, but like in uh, media in general, a lot of times is the accusations come out, the press just throws all of those out. And then the person might be exonerated from the crimes and we, we never really hear of that. Yeah. And it happens so many years later. And mm -hmm. yeah. And like one of the issues, at least with the U.S. justice system at this point, is there's so much pressure. They drag things out so long in order to make you settle. Yeah, 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 exactly. The first person up would be uh, Fidel uh, Salinas. Mm -hmm. uh, Fidel was a hacker with alleged ties with an anonymous Mm -hmm. And he was charged by the Southern District of Texas by what could be described as a bit of an overreach by the prosecution. Mm -hmm. In November of 2014, a plea agreement was finally met between uh, Fidel and the prosecutors, where Fidel pled guilty to a misdemeanor count of computer fraud and abuse, and he had to pay a $10,000 restitution fee. Okay. The plea, though, kind of left out the fact that the attorney's office had charged him originally with 44 felony counts of computer fraud and cyber stalking, which 
of these crimes, each one carries a 10-year maximum sentence. So they were effectively trying to send him away for 440 years. Okay. And his defense attorney, who did this all pro bono for Ickland, uh, he contested those charges were piled on via faulty reading of the computer crimes law and was possibly used as a method to intimidate his client. There was some kind of, he said, she said that they were trying to intimidate him, to use him to attack other targets and all that stuff. But none of that was actually like corroborated in any way. Mm. And 18 of those 44 charges were for cyberstalking and they were for cyberstalking an unnamed victim. However, when we look closer at each of those charges, they were based around uh, Fidel filling out a public contact form on the victim's website with garbage text. So each time he clicked the submit button, the prosecution deemed that was a separate case of cyberstalking. That's a stretch. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was, you know, from, from my readings, just garbage text. It wasn't even like threatening text or anything. Right, in that right, matter. right. Just gibberish. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 counts of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act violation were tied to the websites he had targeted in his alleged hacking spree. He was charged multiple times for different alleged hacking attempts of the same site over the course of minutes. All these were a result of Fidel scanning the sites with just open source vulnerability scanning tools. That was it. Mm-hmm. The The one charge, uh, which was dropped to misdemeanor um, that he pled for, was um, for scanning the Hidalgo County website for vulnerabilities, uh, which prosecutors argued slowed down the site's performance. Which, yeah. Yeah, I, I've definitely been in situations where the vulnerability assessment tools mm-hmm. had a performance impact, but I get to watch the feeds of what hits my websites at my current uh, engagement. And man, if we could get that kind of prosecution for any of the activity, let alone each individual attempt. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of these, um, like we'll touch on a few other stories, but a lot of these kind of, are like, okay, well, if this was the case, we'd all be going to jail. Like every every U.S. citizen in some way, shape, or form would be going to jail for violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Even if you say somebody who deliberately used tools to try and exploit security vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. even say, hey, we until it reaches a certain threshold, we're not going to prosecute it. Like you have to do it for multiple days or even multiple weeks or, or months. Right, right, yeah. Let me tell you, we would overload the legal system mm-hmm. instantly. Yeah. Even if you want to say attribution is hard, even if you got one in a hundred, if we're able to attribute one in a hundred, you'd mm-hmm. still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What gets me about the zealousness of this is it's not just the number of inflating the number of, of accounts. It's mm-hmm. the fact that they're going after this activity at all. Like, I really wish we knew what the rest of the story was, why they yeah. went after this, this particular guy. I'll, well, like you were saying, a plausible explanation would have been that they thought he had a relationship with other folks, whether or not he did, and they mm-hmm. were using it as a lever on him to get him to flip. Yeah, yeah, very possible. And if that were the case, well, that's not really how that's supposed to work in the justice system. It's supposed to be, mm-hmm. I've got somebody and I've got something real on them. And I use that as a real leverage, not I manufactured a bunch of charges that, that are have very low veracity in order to <laughs> lever things. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Do we actually know any more details on exactly uh, what was going on there? Um, that basically all there is uh, written up. His defense attorney cited that the news, um, you know, like I said, had run all the stories about the massive amount of charges Mm-hmm. of Adele and already destroyed his reputation um, yeah. and hung him out to dry. And then pretty much all of those news sources 
uh, ignored the fact that the charges had been dropped. A lot of them just did not do like a um, like an update to the story or anything like that. Um, it just kind of yeah. you know, flew under the radar. But yeah, I, I couldn't find anything else. Yeah, chances are probably a lot of that's like sealed behind core documents. That's, yeah, that. that's what would concern me is that mm-hmm. the agreement is the fact that we got that much information is maybe more than we should have expected out of a plea agreement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next up is David uh, Nosel. Mm-hmm. And David Nossel worked for an executive search and recruiting company by the name of Corn and Ferry mm-hmm. and resigned from them in 2004. And part of his separation agreement, uh, he agreed for a non-compete for one year. However, a few months after leaving the company, he sought out three employees of Corn and Ferry and asked them to help him with uh, starting up and competing business. Okay. And before leaving the company, the employees downloaded a large amount of confidential and proprietary data from the employees' computers, uh, like lists of like uh, you know people contact information for people to call, um, try yeah. to bring them into the new company, that sort of thing. The government alleged that the defendants knowingly and with intent to fraud exceeded their authorization on the business computers. Uh, in 2008, Nozzle and three employees were indicted by the federal government on 20 counts of violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So Nozzle appealed the indictment, claiming that the CFAA was aimed at hackers and didn't cover employees who downloaded information they shouldn't or who violate, violate contract confidentiality agreements. Mm-hmm. Uh, he argued that the employees had full access to the data. Uh, they never acted without authorization. They didn't do anything to like hack into the uh, company database. They just yeah, logged this in. Is ins- this is insider threat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the argument was uh, also based on the fact that the uh, this ruling would basically criminalize almost everyone uh, because looking at personal email, checking sports scores, or doing anything not specifically stated in your computer use policies by your company would violate that policy. Yeah, it would become criminal. Yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, purely anecdotal, but I get the impression that taking your call lists, taking some amount of, of, of the contact information from job mm-hmm. to job is not exactly unknown in sales it's kind of a common thing and yeah now as far as that goes that is for real what those non-competes really should should like that's where they're enforceable yeah 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 exactly you can't have a job in this industry for x amount of time has been shown to be and again anecdotally but i'm pretty solid on this unenforceable at this point in time but those call lists i could see where there's some civil liabilities there but that's I agree with that interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the, the civil side, like yeah, totally, like you violated that non-compete. Uh, the federal indictments for the CFAA, it's like okay, this is kind of jump on the fence there. So, despite his argument, uh, Nozzle was convicted in 2013, but that conviction uh, took two field trips to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, before mm-hmm. it was actually um, set in stone. the The first trip cited the, the judges as ruling that someone didn't actually have to hack anything to be charged as a hacker under the CFAA, which kind of opens a whole can of worms there. And the second uh, time it went before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the judges referenced the argument um, that Nozzle put out about this applying to almost any employee and concluded that employees couldn't be prosecuted under the CFAA just for violating a computer use policy the company implemented. It's still kind of in appeals. Uh, from what I've what I've read in some documents, and the sentence for Nozzle was just for one year and one day um, for the mm-hmm. conviction. So it wasn't like a, a steep sentencing, but still, like he has a federal crime on his record now. Yeah, well, I, frankly, his plight pales in comparison to that interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
that's scary. And I didn't realize that that wasn't that a container, a case like that hadn't been settled law yet. That surprises me. Yeah. Yeah. That is um, very freaky. We've done a couple of episodes when we were talking about uh, in the first DNS episode about mm-hmm. how the sex.com case essentially codified that domain names as property. So it's not like there haven't been incidents where the law hadn't didn't need to be figured out. Right. Yeah. Um, we've definitely seen that. The fact that this is not subtle law at this point shocks me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The the third person uh, talking about this one, this one was really interesting. Uh, his name is Sergey Alenikov. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was an employee for Goldman Sachs. Um, he was a computer programmer for them. Yeah, I read a little bit about this one. Okay, yeah. And he was prosecuted by New York federal and state jurisdictions for the alleged copying of proprietary source code from his employers before joining a competing firm. Mm-hmm. So a little background. Um, Sergey was on a trip. Um, he was flying back into Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You know, he had just signed on with this, this new company. Like, life was good. Um, he was an immigrant to the U.S. He was moving into a new house that he had designed and everything. And he cool. kind of noticed that um, when he got off the plane, there were three guys in black suits kind of like sitting there standing and where the um you know they keep the wheelchairs and everything and he's like well that's kind of strange and they approached him and were like hey like is your name sergey like you need to come with us and basically just um you know cuffed him and kind of like routed him away from everyone else and so you know they brought him into the station sat him down cuffed him to the uh the chair and everything and he was interviewed with this fbi agent uh, michael mcswain who told him that he was very suspicious of uh, what Sergey had done because he had used a tool called Subversion. And the location of the server that he connected to was in Germany. So that just like that set off a bunch of red flags to him. <laughs> For those who don't know, who have only lived in the Git world, before Git, the, the, one of the source code management tools of choice was called Subversion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for those that ever want to work for... Um, any space agency, we still use the version. That's the primary. A lot of missions don't use Git at all. And on top of, on top of that, um, Sergey had cleared his bash history, so that was that was very that was very suspicious to the FBI agent. He got his computer forensics <laughs> degree out of a cracker jack. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because um, unbeknownst to Sergey, uh, Goldman Sachs had only found out that he had downloaded his data a few days before he was arrested at the airport. He had left a month ago um, mm-hmm. at this point. And it was, it was three days prior to him landing at uh, Newark airport that they found out about this. They immediately called the FBI two days prior to his coming into Newark. And they put their agent through a crash course of high frequency trading and computer programming. So McSwain later conceded that he, he didn't seek out any independent expert advice to study the code Sergey had uh, taken and he just relied on Goldman Sachs, basically telling him what the crime had been, what the worth of the code that Sergey had stolen was, and that this was really, really bad, according to Goldman Sachs. So he just kind of went along with it. Yeah, well, we um, we talked about the phone freaking manuals case mm-hmm. in the Cult of the Dead Cow episode, actually. And that yeah, might have yeah, been yeah. where the computer fraud and USAC first came up. And Bell said it was worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I think the figure was like $80,000 in like right. 1980s money. And the defense attorneys proved that those manuals were actually available for like 13 bucks if you, if you just <laughs> ordered them. Um, so I'm just saying that mm-hmm. their valuation is not necessarily trustworthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
McSwain noted that uh, Goldman Sachs files had been on uh, the laptop um, that Sergey had on him on the plane and some thumb drives taken from Sergey. But like this article points out the fact that none of those files had been opened uh, since mm-hmm. Sergey had downloaded them. So if he had downloaded them, you know, with malicious intent, like why were they just kind of like sitting there, like right? You know, Sergey uh, basically tried, like he, he said in the article and in, in the interview for the article that like he was he was sitting there kind of like these guys don't understand computers at all. And he was trying mm-hmm. to explain to him like what subversion is and why like we just connect to the server. I don't know where the server is. If it's in Germany, like, okay, cool. Like, how would I know that? <laughs> and, you know, they kind of poked at like, oh, well, like Goldman Sachs should have been blocking your, your internet connection. Like, how did you get around their, their block to go out? And he was like, they don't block anything we do. Like they block our access to like porn. And that's about <laughs> it. Like everything else yeah. is allowed. And so Sergey stood accused of violating the uh, Economic Espionage Act of 1996 and the Interstate Transport of Stolen Property because he had that laptop and thumb drive on him when he flew out of uh, out of the state. So he being Sergey spent five hours walking the FBI through and correcting them on a written statement of confession that they wanted him to sign. Now, they basically slapped the paper in front of him. He looked at it and went, this is all wrong. None of this makes any sense. Like, here, let me help you rewrite this. And he didn't sign it. Please say he didn't sign no, it. No, he, he signed it. He, okay. he signed it at the very end. And to which McSwain sent a one line email to the U.S. Attorney Office saying, holy crap, he signed a confession. You know, and I, I kind of don't fault him too much on it. Like, you know, he's yeah, he's, an he's an immigrant. And he, sh- he doesn't and understand. He should have been Mirandized at that point. One would one would hope. But. He he was he was Mirandized uh, when he was brought into the office or into okay. the, uh, the room. But you know, I I don't think I don't think most like natural born U.S. citizens understand. Yeah, all that stuff, and then you throw it into like a stressful situation of being like arrested and dragged yeah. out of an airport by FBI agents who won't tell you what you're basically in for. Like he he said that like he didn't really know what had happened and his first thought jumped to like oh crap the new company that i got hired for has done something really shady and like they think i was part of it and they're arresting me because of that like he this was not even in his mind that it was like oh it's those files that i downloaded (laughs) so the the prosecution also tried to frame the document the the written document and confession that he had signed as uh, exactly what a thief would do um, because it was like, you know, a lot of writing that was crossed out, rewritten. And so therefore it showed that he was being very cautious and like conniving and sinister um, and how he was trying to word the confession document that way, like he helped rewrite. Mm -hmm. If the facts are with you, argue the facts. If the law is with you, argue the law. Neither is with you. Call the other lawyer names. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know where in that like flowchart is take anything the other person does that would even be moderately sensible and mm-hmm. vilify it. You know, it, it's clear they were like just kind of reaching for straws. Like, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll just do whatever we can to make this this stick. Like, they really had it out for this, and I'm sure that it's Goldman Sachs trying to push this. Uh, yeah, had no influence on the matter whatsoever. Yeah, well, that's that's part of it. Is is a lot of these things sound like somebody's got pull and mm-hmm. got the FBI in motion. And we've talked about several of these things, several things where the where the FBI kind of acted after all the damage was done. Right. Yeah. The contrast is shocking to me, but it looks like they were looking for a fast prosecution, and mm-hmm. they thought they could railroad somebody in there and. 
I mean, I don't know if you're going to get to this, but the thing that I remember glancing at on that was that a lot of the code that he actually was copying was open source. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was my next point. Um, okay. like he, yeah, yeah. He, he maintained his defense uh, that he only tended to download all the open source stuff that he contributed to. And like, you know, a tiny bit of proprietary code got like downloaded inadvertently. Like you might've pulled down like a top level directory structure and mm-hmm. the, you know, open source stuff was, you know, one level down or like, you know, however it was set up, but it's very clear. Like, you know, he pulled down like bits and pieces and then never opened those portions. Um, yeah. So his, his defense moved for dismissal of the CFAA charge and the court agreed to that um, mm-hmm. rolling that, you know, quote, an employee with authority to access his employer's computer system does not violate the CFAA by using his access privilege to um, misappropriate information. I can see by the look on your face, you're thinking about the previous case. I am. I am indeed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I thought as I was um, reading these and writing these. I was like, wait a second. How does that work? <laughs> I am at a loss for words. <laughs> yeah, you got to love it. Oh, Another. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Keep them coming. All right. So, so another fun tidbit. Uh, info from the trial you know i i don't know what high frequency trading is uh just from the article it references the fact that this is very kind of like an obscure thing that not a lot of people know about the michael lewis book flash boys is about high frequency trading mm-hmm. and this is actually a really interesting thing and if i can dig up enough information about the actual technical execution i'd love to do an episode okay but basically they're operating faster than everybody else there's data centers right next to the, the, the uh, New York Stock Exchange to minimize latency because latency matters. Mm, okay. They're looking for sub 10 millisecond latency. They're, they're doing trades incredibly fast. They actually have to code them into, into FPGAs and ASICs, one of the two, um, in order mm-hmm. to do trades fast enough. But what they're doing is basically they know what the, or- they know what the order is and mm-hmm. they buy the stock at the current price and essentially make the difference by getting in the or their order faster interesting okay there's a lot of money to be made picking up nickels this way right yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's all about competing for speeds in fact one of the stories from flash boys that kind of made it to various interviews was that in order to punish one person's server they actually put in just a cable with a lot of extra loops in it to increase the latency <laughs> really Jeez. yeah but like this is Big money stuff, very right down to the metal trading mechanisms uh, in order to essentially beat out and make the margin on and, and make the margin on the trade. You can talk about how sketchy this is in terms of like market performance, but from a technical yeah. perspective, it's the fastest networking you can do. And these banks have lots of tech, very well paid technical people that are in a very small community doing this kind of work. And the code is very proprietary. In a lot of ways, they may be using hardware, maybe the only ones using the hardware the way that they're using. Really? Yeah. Mm. So like there is something to be said that proprietary code in that arena is highly valuable. Mm. That is not bullshit. Right, right, right. I understand Goldman Sachs's caution there, but the FBI's treatment of the case is less thorough than I would prefer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it rings very hollow that the, like it had no one. Like I, w- I wouldn't imagine FBI has someone that knows high frequency trading. Like that would be kind of ridiculous. But someone that knows what subversion is, yeah. um, I would imagine they have someone they could call and be like, "Hey, does this check out?" Well, so uh, this was 
you said 2012? Uh, he was convicted in uh, 2009. Okay, well, in 2009, yeah. That's far enough in where 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 the FBI, I would expect, had some technical capabilities available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is before they really started ramping up some of their um, their anti trafficking stuff, their right, anti trafficking yeah. call centers and whatnot. But you know, this is all just, um, frankly, that's all hearsay, all like anecdotal hearsay mm-hmm. for me. I, I'm just vaguely going by things that I've heard people mention and stuff that I've read. Um, right, yeah. I haven't I haven't tried to you know construct that, but you'd think that they would. And like you said, he didn't the agent uh Sweeney, you said McSwain. McSwain, sorry. Yeah, well, he said that he didn't call anybody, and mm-hmm. one would assume that they either had consultants available or in their technical services side had folks that knew a thing or two about programming that they could have at least run it past. Yeah, and um, like the Vanity Fair article got into more of it too. Uh, McSwain had actually worked on Wall Street um, mm-hmm. and had left Wall Street the year that Sergey had um, gotten hired on Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he was kind of like you know he was like fairly fresh to the FBI. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just um, yeah reeks of like Goldman Sachs railroading this and being like, hey, trust us. Or a combination of that and somebody who was really eager to get his first big case done i yeah. mean again all the motivation stuff is supposition it's just yeah, that yeah. like i said it strikes me the contrast between between what we see in some other cases and mm-hmm. what we see here the and the rapidity at which they they acted yeah and because you know it's such a um high money making thing mm-hmm. no one wanted to take the time to go to the courtroom to explain what it was because you know they were busy making their fortune so the mm-hmm. only person they could get uh that was an outside expert witness to take the stand was a professor from uh the illinois institute of technology who mm-hmm. had actually never done any high frequency trading mm-hmm. referred to goldman sachs as the new york yankees of like trading he's not wrong <laughs> yeah uh, according according to the article had nothing of value to add in terms of um what sergey had taken or like any information yeah. to provide to the court. So the the other charges, um, though, were left, and Sergey was convicted in 2011 through a federal appeals court. Uh, they reversed that conviction, a ruling that Sergey had been wrongfully charged with espionage. Mm-hmm. The district attorney's office, though, then came back with some state laws they found and attempted to bring these new charges against him, uh, which he was convicted of in the first case, uh, the charge, but acquitted on the second one. And the Vanity Fair article um, on this is really good. It goes into the history of Sergey, you know, where he came from, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, you'll you'll have to make sure I have that for the episode notes. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's this other thing that I've seen, and this is not just a hacker thing, but there is a little bit of a sunk cost fallacy built into prosecution sometimes Mm -hmm. where they don't want to give up on getting anything out of a prosecution if they spend right. the time on it yeah 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 oh i find it interesting you just flipped the, the link across that that michael lewis did this he's also the guy who wrote that book flash boys mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I think at the very start it says like this was um part of the inspiration for that oh for, yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, that makes a ton of sense <laughs> <laughs> And then, so finally for this one, um, the last one I want to talk about is Josh Renaud. This is, this is a more recent one. Might have actually seen this in the news. So back in October 2021, 
The mm-hmm. St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter, Josh Renaud, um, he alerted the Missouri Education Department officials that their website was uh, exposing social security numbers of more than 100,000 primary and secondary teachers. How did you find this out? Um, was it you know some clever uh, cross-site scripting or some SQL injection that he used uh, while he was playing around against the website's, website's database or anything? I think I think I've told you about this one, so I, I don't yeah, know yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you get to the punchline because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you told me you t- you described this one to me when you were pitching me this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, none of the above. The social security numbers were accessible in the HTML source code uh, of the Missouri Education Department web pages. So he was able to find this. He reported it to them. After confirming the data had been secured, the Post Dispatch then ran the story about their findings. This in yep. the spirit of responsible disclosure, which again we just talked about in the twenty six hundred club mm-hmm. episode yeah. that we just did. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Governor Parson responded to this by holding a press conference uh, where he thanked the journalists uh, and talked about the ongoing efforts of his administration to improve security. I'm just kidding. He vowed in the press conference that his administration would seek to prosecute and investigate the quote unquote hackers and anyone who aided the publication in its quote attempt to embarrass the state and sell headlines for their news outlet. So he, he mentioned that a hacker is quote, someone who gains unauthorized access to information or content and the individual in question was not given permission to do what they did. So therefore uh, this was clearly a hack, which is interesting because this entire time I did not realize that you can't right click on websites in view page source uh, without requesting the permission of said websites. So I have, I have been hacking for way too long. So I think a really important point about all of this is that there's a real chilling effect on research mm. um, that happens. And there's, because you're worried, hey, maybe I'll be prosecuted for X. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal. And it, was, it wasn't the 2600 Club. It was, we were to, it was the, um, your last episode. Oh, my memory's not good. I can't remember that. <laughs> it's just, it's just thinking about, but, but there's a chilling effect problem where mm-hmm. just the fear of it means that it doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. And I don't know what we're not supposed to do here. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, if the prosecution side of the first case gets their way, then anything we do that doesn't exactly follow the policy right. gets us in trouble. Why would I take the risk of using a, a customer's computer or, or an employer's computer? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You could get me for basically anything. Yeah, exactly. Pwned own. That's the last one I did. Pwned own, um, yes. Yeah, we, we, we were, were talking, talking about we, uh... we, we talked about responsible disclosure mm-hmm. and all, kind of the progression of that. Pwned yeah. own even though it was within the context of, of the contest. I'm sure that one of the zealous prosecutions, if they tried hard enough, could find something to, to prosecute somebody on. Mm-hmm. That even though it was, you know, invited and the research was for the greater good. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to, to basically any activity, it's like, oh, I better not report on anything. I better not, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. touch anybody's code that isn't my own. Because just looking at it could get me prosecuted. Yeah, exactly. And Governor Parson had the Missouri Highway Patrol um, tasked with the responsibility of producing a investigation and a 158-page report. After 175 hours of investigation, that concluded uh, Renaud did nothing wrong. <laughs> so he, that's 175 hours. I didn't really do the math, but you know, times whatever. 
over time that probably is you know on top of what the missouri highway patrol is doing um you know day-to-day wise uh all that money to look in and go yeah no um right clicking the the website isn't actually hacking sorry yeah the actual proposed response to this also um came out by the education department leaders and their response was to tell renaud uh, how grateful they were for uh, bringing this to their attention and that they appreciated what he had done. Yeah. I mean, like you said, the, he, he held back, they held back on publication until it was fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in an interview with uh, Mallory McGowan, who is the chief communications officer for the state's department of elementary and secondary education, she told uh, the police the website actually exposed 560, uh, 576,000 social security numbers. And that data had been basically public for at least a decade. It says something about the QA that they were doing for their website, but mm-hmm. I mean, but that's nothing in comparison to the zealous prosecution side of things. And frankly, what that screams that was the governor that was, we don't care about the personal information of these people. We mm-hmm. care about being embarrassed. Yep, exactly. It also gets even juicier um, because McCowan also said the uh, DESE's website was developed and maintained by the Office of Administration's Information Technology Service Division, which is the governor uh, governor's office. They control uh, that mm-hmm. directly. And she stated in 2009, the policy was changed to move all information tech services to the Office of Administration. And this data was exposed since 2011, which is two years after Governor Parsons centralized all of the state's IT systems with his office. So they were directly culpable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I was writing this, I realized it was going to kind of turn out to be like, you know, somewhat lengthy uh, with all this. Mm-hmm. I think I was telling you um, off pod, but yeah. like some of, some of the names I was looking into, they also were, you know, victims of kind of very loose interpretations of the CFAA. Um, however, they were also huge assholes yeah. um, in the things they did. So I was kind of like, ah, I don't really want to touch on that because, like, yeah. it, it sucks. They were prosecuted, but also they're jerks. We're looking for sympathy, not no. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, we we have some good examples here. We don't have mm-hmm. to. If you've got good examples of people that we don't have to be ambiguous about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, there were there was another one that I spent a couple hours um, trying to find, I know I texted you about it too. Um, I think it was about four or five years ago, might've been even more recent, that I read an article of um, uh, someone in Australia, I think, or it might've been New Zealand, who mm-hmm. kind of the same thing as Renaud, um, but he was using uh, an, uh, an app for the trains. Mm-hmm. And he found through like, I think very basic methods, he was able to find that a ton of uh, the PII of passengers was just kind of like sitting there waiting yeah. to be looked at and he notified them and immediately the transmit department 180 on him and tried to like you know be like oh he hacked us like send him send him to jail um i couldn't find uh any other information on that so like i'm just going off the top of my head what from what i remember but you know yeah. these things happen fairly frequently yeah i mean i know that in my wanderings in the web i have manipulated API strings and stuff like that, where I found some pictures that I wanted to see more of and realized that they had a predictable domain uh, directory structure and mm-hmm. just kind of chiseled my way through there, stuff like that. Or um, I haven't done any of this, but I know that a couple of banks in the earlier internet um, had some problems where 
they only had one layer of authentication. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you got in to your account and you changed the account number and you guessed a valid account number, you mm -hmm. had rights on that account too. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, this was yeah. a problem in mm -hmm. early banking websites. As I recall, a major bank had a problem with that a little bit after it should have been a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't want to name them because I remember looking for uh, some track back on that to do an episode about it. And I mm -hmm. couldn't find enough information. So I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. If I don't have if I don't have the facts, I'm not going to slander anybody. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the nature of the game, too. Like when I first started going to school uh, for this stuff, I think I told you, as anyone I'm sure listening knows, uh, college books are incredibly expensive. Yes. Um, so screw that. I found them in other ways. And one of those ways was that a lot of professors would have mm -hmm. just open FTP sites for their web, uh, for their course. Yeah. And just going up one directory gave you access to all the resources um, for that course. And, you know, it wasn't secure in any way. I didn't like, you know, hack the mainframe to get in, but I was like, yeah. oh, okay, here's the book. Cool. Thanks. Um, or here, here's an ISO for like, you know, exactly what I need. Um, right. That sort of thing. Yeah. And the way that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act the way I understood it, the way that it has been described to me is that basically you have to put a control to be bypassed in mm -hmm. order for it to um, count as abuse. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically obfuscating it didn't count as a control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And so uh, lastly, I'll touch on the fact that one key person is missing from this list, uh, that being Aaron Schwartz. Yeah, but he did it. Yeah, yeah, he did it. Um, but I think that would be a good episode to touch on in a different uh, way yeah. of, although he did it, how hard they came after him. Yes, um, yes. It was the zealousness that that, that mm -hmm. was the real problem there. Yeah. It wasn't the fact that he did it because he did it and he intended to do it. But yes. I don't think anybody would have predicted the response he got. No, no. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into it uh, when we do that episode. But the thing he did didn't work that response in any way. Yeah, But yeah, so I'll round off this episode uh, just by saying um, to our listeners, uh, don't you dare ever uh, right-click on view page source on any website or the FBI will come uh, come and knock on your door like you downloaded a car. Come on, knock on our door. <laughs> Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.